Well, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. Wait for her. <laughs> please don't leave her in the sermon. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 22. In this passage of Scripture, we see the importance of following Jesus. And what we see are two individuals that represent a lot of the reasons that people will give for not following the Lord Jesus Christ and the answers of commitment that are given to them. Now, we live in a culture that really values convenience over commitment. As a matter of fact, when people make a commitment, often what we find is we are doubtful as to whether or not they'll follow through with that commitment, right? We kind of wonder, are they just saying this or do they intend to follow through? Well, really, we find that even though we are a couple of thousand years past the first century, we still see commitment as being confused even in the first century. And that's certainly the case with these two examples of people who come to Jesus and express a desire to follow Him. But that expression of that desire doesn't necessarily reflect what really following Jesus means. So when we come to verse 18, we find the first example, the example of a scribe. And what we see in this text is we need to be willing to let go of our possessions and our position in order to follow Jesus Christ. And we really find that words come easy and talk is cheap when it comes to commitment and following the Lord. So let's look at this passage of Scripture and see what it says to us. Verse 18, now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. We know that Jesus had left the area where the Sermon on the Mount took place, and he went to Capernaum, and there he was ministering the gospel, Capernaum, right on the Sea of Galilee. And the crowds were building. We last left off with Jesus casting out demons and healing all who came to him with diseases. And as you can imagine, there would have been those who were coming to Jesus for the prospect of being healed, but also those who came to Jesus to watch the show. I mean, they were coming in to see the miracles performed and things that they had never seen done before. So they were sort of jumping on the bandwagon and saying, hey, this is exciting, this is good, let's see what's taking place. And so there they were. But you know, when Jesus came, he didn't come to just heal the sick or cast out demons. As a matter of fact, that was a secondary purpose. Jesus came to pr promote the kingdom of God, to proclaim the truth of God, to demonstrate that He is Messiah, ultimately Savior, and His purpose was to build the kingdom. The healing of the sick, the casting out of demons, were authenticating miracles to demonstrate that Jesus is who He says He is. Now, for those who were benefiting from having their diseases healed, from having their demons cast out, we can't minimize the compassion and the love of Jesus, but that wasn't His primary purpose. He had a bigger purpose in mind, and that bigger purpose was to bring the truth of the gospel to those around them. But then the text goes on, and it mentions that He was going from this shore to another, 
And he was going with his disciples. Another purpose that Jesus had was to prepare his disciples because Jesus knew that his ministry, his time on earth, was short, that the cross was coming, that he would face crucifixion to pay for the sins of man, so he had to prepare people to carry the message of the gospel in his absence. So what we find as we come into this text is Jesus moving from one place to another to be alone with his disciples and to pull away from the crowds and see if the crowds would indeed follow. And then we come to verse 19. And in verse 19, what we find is this. A scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will go wherever you go. Now, on its surface, we hear that and we think, wow, that's awesome. This person is making a commitment to follow Jesus wherever he goes. Now, we don't know whether the scribe just meant, hey, I'd like to jump in the boat and go with you guys across the lake, or whether he meant, hey, I'm going to follow you no matter where you go. But the idea was he was on board. He was with Jesus. He was ready in that moment to make a commitment Now, in order to understand exactly what's going on in this, we have to understand what a scribe is, who the scribes were in the first century. When verse 19 mentions that a scribe came up to him, we have no context for scribes. As a matter of fact, sometimes we think in terms of a scribe just being kind of like a human copier. Basically, they were taking manuscripts and copying them down, and that's a a very short-sighted view of what a scribe is. A scribe was actually a scholar. They were people who studied in depth the teachings of the Old Testament. And no doubt, as this scribe was listening to Jesus, he could hear Jesus sharing truths that he had studied from the Old Testament and it piqued his curiosity. The scribes, as we see them many times in Scripture, were often associated with the Pharisees. And it was unusual for one of the leaders in Israel, like a scribe, to actually come alongside the Lord Jesus Christ and say that he was willing to commit to him. But we have to look a little bit deeper at what the scribe says in order to understand what's going on. Look at verse 19 and notice how the scribe addresses Jesus. He addresses him as teacher. He might have even used the term rabbi. And what we find in that is this approach of the scribe to Jesus reflects the way many would come to a rabbi in the first century and sign on to come under their tutelage, to be taught by the rabbi. It was a formal agreement, if you will, where they would come and say, hey, I will follow you, and then the rabbi would either take them on or not. But here's the thing. When a person wanted to sign on to a rabbi and connect themselves with that rabbi, there was often prestige that would go along with it. You were known by the rabbi that you associated yourself with. Kind of like our educational system, when you get a graduate degree, it matters where the school is. You get one of the Ivy League schools and people go, wow, you know. You get um, Podunk U. And they go, eh, no big deal. So here what we find is this scribe wanting to attach to Jesus. Why? Because I would submit to you, the scribe saw the growing popularity of Jesus 
And he said, I want in on the ground floor. He viewed Jesus as merely a teacher. And he made a statement, I will follow you wherever you go. You know, this promise to follow Jesus wherever he would go. What a great statement that would be if it were true. As a pastor, in my 38 years of ministry, I've heard a lot of people make the statement, I'm going to follow Jesus no matter what. And I used to get really excited about that. Wow, a turning point. But you know what the test of really following is? Not the commitment that we make in the moment. Perhaps they had an event in their life that gives them pause and causes them to reevaluate. Maybe they've heard an inspiring sermon and they're moved by it and they make a commitment and say, yeah, I'm going to follow Jesus. When I was a youth, we used to go to youth camp in Bradley, West Virginia. It was uh, Appalachian Bible Institute's camp and the closing ceremony always had... uh, fire, a bonfire, and students would take a piece of wood and walk up and throw it on the fire and say they're going to follow Jesus. And It was always a pivotal part of the camp. What would disillusion me is often on the bus ride home, the very students that threw the piece of wood on the fire were making out in the back of the church bus, you know. It was confusing. When we say that we're going to follow Jesus, The only way that we can tell if a person really means it is by their follow-through. Words are easy, talk is cheap. Do we have a life that really backs it up? Do we make the commitment based on personal convenience? Or are we looking and saying, I fully intend to follow Jesus and I will follow through on that commitment? We can't know whether or not a commitment is genuine. And as a matter of fact, I still get excited when people say they want to follow Jesus. But I get more excited when I see a month from then, six months from then, a year from then, that change has taken place. This is what God wants in us. Not just seeing Him as a good teacher, just making him the kind of Jesus that we feel comfortable with, if you will, a custom-designed Jesus. We want to find find and follow the, the true Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, who is God. This scribe, I don't think, got it. And here's why. Look at Jesus's response to him. Jesus drives home to this scribe that we need to walk humbly as we follow Jesus. The scribe said, I'll follow you wherever you want to go. And look at the first things out of Jesus' mouth in response to the scribe. Verse 20, Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and the birds of the air nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now the idea that Jesus is communicating, I think, went right to the heart of what was going on in this scribe. The scribe was looking and saying, here's my chance for advancement. Here's my chance to be elevated above my other contemporaries by attaching 
to who at that point was a great teacher, uh, up-and-coming rabbi. If I can get in on the ground floor, that's going to increase my position. What Jesus is laying out for him is this, look, following has cost. Now listen, there's nothing wrong with possessions. When Jesus says that the foxes do not have holes and, and the birds do not have nests, what he's saying to this scribe and to everyone is this, we can't necessarily count on the fact that we'll hold our possessions. Jesus had a house, but he was never there because he was always in ministry, always sharing, always doing the work of spreading the gospel. The possessions that we have have to be held with an open hand. We can't take the things that are around us and grab hold of them and say, this is mine. Part of following Jesus is surrendering those things and recognizing that, yes, as a follower of Jesus, that might mean that I abandon some of the comforts, some of the conveniences of life. Jesus was being real with this scribe, with this follower, something else. The not having a hole or a nest also perhaps is a foreshadowing of the persecution that Jesus and his followers would experience. As persecution increased, finding a place where they could stay was not an option. They had to keep moving because that persecution was pressing upon them to try and take their lives. So Jesus is warning the scribe of the cost of that discipleship. But then the last part of that statement that he makes to the scribe is significant. Look at the last part of that 20th verse. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now when Jesus uses the term Son of Man, which he uses 29 times in the book of Matthew, it's easy for us to just let it right over the head. We look at it and we figure, oh, he's talking about being a human, a son of man. No, not what Jesus is talking about. Because in reality, Jesus wasn't a son of man. He was a son of a woman, <laughs> but not a son of a man. So what is he talking about? The prophet Daniel shares the following with us. It's a prophecy about the coming Messiah. And he says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days. Now, son of man would be Messiah, Ancient of Days would be God. So he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom. Now, it sounds a lot like Daniel is talking about the future coming Messiah and a kingdom that would be given to him by God. This, when Jesus uses this title with the scribe, who should have known this passage of Scripture as a student of the Old Testament, was really a statement of authority and power. But the text goes on. All peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is, now look at this, an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. 
When we look at the history of man, every kingdom came and went. But there is coming a kingdom where the king will be on the throne forever. And so when Jesus says to him, the son of man, he's claiming that title. What he's saying to the scribe is this, I am so much more than a teacher. I am the promised one of God. I am the one who will sit on the throne forever. I will have an everlasting kingdom. Now, perhaps the confusion for the scribe would have been the fact that Jesus wasn't sitting on the throne when he said that. Many who would read the Old Testament would assume that as soon as Messiah comes, he would establish his kingdom, and boom, everything takes place. But God had a different purpose, a different plan in mind. His purpose and his plan was for the Son of Man to come, to suffer, to die, to be raised again and seated at the right hand of God and coming again to establish that kingdom on earth. Paul says this to the Philippians, who, speaking of Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Throughout eternity past, Jesus existed as God, the second person of the Trinity. And then it goes on to say this, but made himself nothing, verse 7, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. What the Messiah experienced as the Son of Man before the kingdom came the cross. And so, had this scribe stayed with Jesus, we don't know whether he did or didn't, he would have seen that Jesus is more than just a teacher. He is the king. And we need to follow him, not the person we want him to be, but the person that he is. Last part of this passage, verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And I love this part of the passage. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. This is the person that the scribe needed to find Jesus to be. Not the good teacher. Not the person who was doing miracles that were really exciting. But Jesus, the Son of God, who took on human flesh, who lived among us, who died for us, who rose again, and is now seated at the right hand of God, but coming again. That's the Jesus that we commit to. But the text goes on. As we come to the next example of a potential follower of Jesus, to our Western ears, when we look at this passage of Scripture, we think Jesus might be a little harsh, but we don't understand the context of what's going on. So let's look at this text and let's see what the Scripture teaches us in this example. Verse 21, another of disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now, we look at this and we think, wait a minute, what, what about family leave, you know? I mean, wasn't that a thing? Isn't that important? 
What we find in this really is kind of a wishy-washy commitment, and I'll explain why as we go through this text. Many people say, I am going to follow Jesus when I get around to it. Now, I used to have this little round thing that said to it on it, and I was going to hold it up, but I couldn't find it. So, the idea is this. Sometime in the distant future, when things work out and it's convenient, I'll follow Jesus. It's a wishy-washy commitment. See, what we really see in this that we need to watch out for the tyranny of the urgent. And what I mean by the tyranny of the urgent is this. In the 1960s, a little booklet was written. It was called The Tyranny of the Urgent. And the idea behind this booklet was this. Sometimes important things pop up and we look at them, or urgent things pop up, and we look at them and we say, wow, that needs to drive my decision for the short term. But in so doing, we are off in this direction, and then off in this direction, and then off in that direction, and we never move toward the important thing, just the urgent thing. When it comes to discipleship, we need to be careful not to allow the tyranny of the urgent, the immediate things that we see around us, the distractions that are always there to dissuade us from following Jesus. And that, I believe, is what's going on here. So let's drill down on this a little bit and see what's going on. Now, this young disciple comes and he says, Lord, let me go and bury my father. Now, when I first read this, I was thinking in terms of, oh, the guy just lost his dad. Not what's going on, right? We know that that isn't true because when a person lost someone in the first century, they had 24 hours by Jewish law to bury the dead for obvious reasons. They didn't have the preservation techniques and other things that we have today, so it was urgent. It had to be taken care of immediately. Additionally, if this person were given the responsibility of seeing to the final affairs of his father, he was probably the eldest son. And the eldest son would have the responsibility of taking care of all of the affairs of the estate and managing the estate. So we're not talking about a 24-hour to 36-hour hiatus. We're talking about something that would be much longer term than that. But here's the issue. Many Bible teachers, and I would agree with them, believe that the father hadn't died. As a matter of fact, when we think about it, If there's only 24 hours to bury the father, there's no way that the father would have died and within that 24 hours he comes to hear Jesus and sits under his ministry and his teaching and all of that. He would have been home making affairs for the funeral, for the burial. And so what he's saying is, you know, one of these days my dad is going to die. And as the eldest son, I need to stick around and make sure that I'm here to take care of those needs. Now, it's commendable to care for the needs of a family, but I believe what is going on is more of the idea of a long-term excuse. When this is completed, then I'll follow. And you know, as I thought about this text, and I thought about the many people who have expressed a desire to follow Jesus, but I thought of many examples Sometimes it's, well, you know, I'm a student right now, and before I really commit to following Jesus, I want to sow my wild oats a little bit, and I want to live life, so to speak. And as soon as that's all done, I'll follow Jesus. 
Oh, wait a minute. You know, I'd really like to be married someday, and I've got this relationship that's really percolating along pretty well. So once I graduate and I get married, then we'll follow Jesus. Oops, we have an unexpected pregnancy. So, you know, I got to focus on this child and raising this child. So once that's done, then I'll follow Jesus. Well, wait a minute. I have a wife and a child to support, so I'd better work and work hard. So I have to invest myself in the career. But you know what? Once the career is done, then I'll get really serious about following Jesus. Then we do the career and we retire. And it's either I'm too tired to follow Jesus at this time, or it's the idea of, hey, you know what? I worked hard all of my life, so I'm going to go enjoy life for a while. Then I'll follow Jesus. Do you catch my point? There's always something that can take the place of following Jesus. And so what Jesus is saying to this man is crucial for us to understand the context in which he says it. And let's move on to that 22nd verse. In verse 22, we find that waiting to follow isn't actually following. Now, look at Jesus' response. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury the dead. Now, again, we hear this and we think, ooh, that's a little harsh, isn't it? But it's a perspective that we need to have and understand in order to really be a follower of Jesus. Think about this for a moment. When Jesus talks about the dead burying the dead, what does he mean? The dead, the first part of that, would be those who are spiritually dead. The other dead that is mentioned here would have been the person who dies. And when the perspective that I need to wrap my life around the potential death, and then once the person dies, wrap my life around what happens after the person dies, if that consumes much of our life, apart from Jesus, we're being distracted by the urgent, and we are not focusing on the important. Yes, it's important when a person dies, but let me ask you this. Can all of the time that is spent in taking care of arrangements, can all of the time that we spend in grieving, and there's really a place for grieving, I'm not diminishing that, but does any of that change the fact that that person died? No. That person, no matter what we do, has passed. What Jesus is saying to this potential follower is this, don't put your life on hold while your father may or may not die. And then spend all of your time with the estate and with your family and with the funeral and all of those things to where you disengage from being a follower of me. Think about this. Jesus had three years of ministry. So this man pulls out for two and a half to take care of these affairs. What has he done for that three years of Jesus' ministry? Not much. What guarantee does he have that he won't die? Not much. We're fragile. 
Life can pass us by. Listen, the point that I think Jesus is making here to this man and to all is we have a limited window to serve Jesus. There is a world around us that is spiritually dead that needs to hear the good news of the kingdom. If I take care of the one who dies physically, that's good, it's commendable, but if it wraps up my entire life to where it excludes my ministry to those who are spiritually dead, I have a problem. Those who are spiritually dead can be changed, transformed. As they hear the gospel and respond to the gospel, they can move from death into life. They can have eternity as a result of the gospel message that is shared. And so God wants this young disciple to hear that and to understand that. It is commendable to minister to your family. It is commendable to care for the affairs. I know some of you have parents that you are engaged in caring for in end-of-life care, and that's commendable. That is not what Jesus is disparaging whatsoever. What he's disparaging is the attitude, wait until and plug in your favorite value, and once that's done, then I'll follow. Because here's the problem. Once that's done, never comes. You can be ministering to a family member end of life and still share the gospel, still be committed to Jesus Christ, still find time for Christian fellowship and discipleship. That's what Jesus is saying. Don't isolate on one priority at a time and be driven from this priority to that priority to this priority when in reality... Jesus should be the focal point of our life. Make sure that those priorities connect with the priority of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus said, let the dead bury the dead, he wasn't being flippant. What he was sharing with this disciple is the importance of understanding the importance of following Jesus. That's his message. Now, some of you may be hearing this message and saying, well, you know, I've probably missed a lot of opportunities to follow through on a commitment. I look at my life, maybe you received Christ later in life. Maybe you've squandered some of your opportunities to serve. And some of you might look and say, oh, there's, there's no point in turning the corner now. I can follow Jesus, but how long will I have to follow him. That's irrelevant. Listen, God always makes room for the person who commits to following him. In the New Testament, there was a fellow named John Mark. And in the book of Acts, it talks about John Mark, actually the guy who wrote the gospel of Mark, going on a missionary journey with the apostle Paul and Barnabas. And on that missionary journey, Paul has a problem with Mark's follow-through. In Acts chapter 15, verse 37, it says this, Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, also called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take 
with one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. So here's the picture. They're serving in a missions venture. Mid-service, Mark leaves. We don't know why. And so here are Paul and Barnabas, two missionaries who are committed to the work of the Lord. Now Barnabas looks at John Mark and says, hey, he needs discipled. He needs to be given another chance. He needs to be worked with in order to be valuable. And that's a good point. As a matter of fact, Barnabas' name means son of encouragement. So this guy needs encouragement, right? But then Paul looks and says, I can't have somebody with me who I can't count on. It's discouraging to the people that we minister to when somebody bails on us. So I can't really take the chance on taking Mark with us. Now, there arose a disagreement as to which course was best. Barnabas took Mark on and they became a missionary team and they grew in value. Paul took on Silas and they became a missionary team. And so through this, the work of sharing the gospel actually doubled by having these two groups. But what about Mark? Did Mark turn the corner? The answer is found in the New Testament. In Colossians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul writes, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. Now, the idea is he saw value in the work of Mark. Although he had not had the follow-through in the past, he had turned the corner, and now he could serve. And then Paul's last letter, he shares this in his final words. Get Mark, bring him with you, or he is very useful to me for ministry. Listen, if you've made commitments in the past and didn't follow through, you can still make a commitment. Don't beat yourself up over what you've done in the past because that can't change. But what can change is a new commitment that is humbly made and that seeks follow-through in making sure that this time that commitment is not based on convenience but on commitment. God wants committed followers. As I said earlier, in our culture, commitment is becoming less and less a thing. A commitment is only as good as our circumstances. And the moment that circumstances become difficult, I'm out. What God wants are people who make commitment to be followers of Jesus Christ who say, thick or thin, easy or difficult, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. May we all be followers in that sense. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for the challenge that it is to us all. May we not <clears throat> seek to follow a Jesus that we customize and make 
him to be who we want him to be, but may we follow the Jesus who is the King, the Messiah, the Eternal One, King of kings and Lord of lords, that every knee will bow and every tongue confess. May we follow him as that Jesus. And Heavenly Father, as we look at our lives, there are so many distractions, so many things that can take our eyes off of a commitment that, hey, I'm going to follow Jesus, and then we renege. God, teach us faithfulness, endurance, perseverance. May we cling to Jesus through all of the difficulties of life, all of the hurts that we experience, may we be a follower of Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.